let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Steve Kirsch, the CEO of Token, which helps banks capitalize on PSD2. Hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for joining us on Fintech Insider. Great to be here, Simon. Uh, so first question, a little bit of an icebreaker. I want to know, what did you want to be as a kid? Uh, I always wanted to be Superman. Pretty, pretty reasonable request. And how's that coming along? Uh, not quite there uh, in a lot of fronts. Uh, too much kryptonite <laughs> in the world, clearly. Too much kryptonite. But uh, you have gone on to sell a number of companies and then go back to start more. So, so what drives you? It's getting things, it's, it's making a difference. It's, you know, you enter this world, you wanna, you're going to leave the world at some point. And while you're here, you're just trying to have an impact that's positive where you felt like you accomplished something. Pretty awesome. So, like, famously, you are one of the inventors of the optical mouse. How did how did that come about? Were you just kind of really annoyed with the ball mouse? I know I was back in the day, like a mouse that just wouldn't work with the right. ball, and it would yeah. really bug me. Yeah, I mean, I was at MIT at the time, and uh, I was working on Lisp machines, and these were two hundred thousand dollars computers, and they had these mice attached to them that were all ball mice, and you couldn't use the machine without a mouse, and the ma and the mice were constantly getting clogged and they wouldn't work and you have to disassemble yeah, them so and clean it, them. It, it, often from frustration, uh, amazing things can happen. And, and um, what is Token and why did you start Token? What, what made you want to do that? Token got started uh, kind of as an outgrowth of uh, uh, a security company I started One uh, ID. And uh, one of the people that worked for One ID was Adam Back and he exposed me to Bitcoin and one thing led to another and I, got interested in starting a Bitcoin company, but found that I couldn't get a bank to open up a bank account for my company. And so I thought, well, you know, banks really should have more modern technology. And the reason that people are interested in Bitcoin is because of frustration uh, with the banking system. If you could send money instantly, digital money instantly worldwide, nobody would be interested in Bitcoin because Bitcoin's like a, a very, very foreign currency uh, to most people. And so I thought that the ideas behind Bitcoin, many of the ideas were good to be able to digitally transfer an asset very quickly. And if it was packaged in a way that was compatible with existing rules and regulations and also how the banking system worked, then that would be a much more viable proposition than trying to say, hey, we're technologists, we invented this Bitcoin, Bitcoin technology, now you, the bankers, should use this or that you, everyone should use this. And it's much better to go in and 
really take an understanding of how the banking system works, how regulation works, and how can we use technology and put them all together to come up with a system that makes the whole thing work better for the bankers, for the regulators, for the central banks, for consumers, for business. And so what does that look like? Talk me through the difference between today and tomorrow. So you know, tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that banks and regulators, nobody just named has, and then tell me about what you envision you know, it could look like in future. So the problem we have today is that historically banks were uh, operating limited hours. They'd be open five days a week. And the central banks then would have similar systems that would be compatible with the banking hours because why would you be open if the banks aren't open? And this led to um, architectures that were mostly batch-based because they're much easier to construct and they're super reliable. And you know, if something goes down, you can just rerun it. You don't have to worry about It's nowhere near as complex as doing real-time systems. And so we built up all this, this legacy for the because of what was happening at the time. So the internet came along in the meantime, and that changed a lot of things, and it changed people's expectations, and now banks are sort of have to be open 24 by seven, and yet the, other, the underlying systems haven't caught up with that. And so the challenge is to create some technology that can layer on top of existing, uh, the existing banking system, and that would enable people to have the level of service that they expect and yet not sort of disrupt uh, things below, below the decks. So it's almost like putting a, a modern facade on top of an old cruise ship. And so that's essentially what we've done. And we, when we need to call down and say, hey, we need more engine power, we call down through certain interfaces and say, you know, can you do this service for us? And they say, yes, the answer is this. But as far as everybody on the top deck is concerned, it looks like they're on a totally modern cruise ship. Interesting, interesting. So then tell me a little bit about Token itself. What is the solution that it's, you know, what's the problem it's solving? Is it more around the payment side? You know, because there's a lot of talk about PSD2 being yeah. you know, APIs for banks and right. you know, banks are going to be open and all of your data from a bank account is going to be made available. Uh, are you just solving the payments piece of it? Is that where you're focused? So we were focused initially on saying, hey, you know, we really need a better way to do payments. We need to make them... Um, uh, happen much faster and more secure and digitally signed and um, there ought to be conditions on it so you can do smart contracts. And so we came up with this notion of a smart token which consists of a, a, an underlying asset, a reference to an underlying asset, a set of rules, and then a state of that uh, token. So for example, if I wanted to make a, a token for my child that gives them the right to uh, draw, spend, say, uh, two quid a day, and um, uh, you could spend up to, um, say, 10 quid per week, and uh, it would expire in a month, it'd be uh, funded with 100 quid total. Then I could construct a, 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 an electronic token that I could give to my child and they could use that to go and, and you know, process off of that. So it's almost like a customized paper check where it says, you know, you're allowed to do this, but it's all digital, so it can be done, it can be moved very efficiently and, and transacted very efficient, efficiently and accurately to the nth degree of condition. So it's like a super smart contract. And um, so that was the sort of the underlying paradigm um, for construction of the system, but that was just one aspect of it. We still needed a way to move money super quickly and 
doing uh, blockchain or Ethereum uh, would not work in the financial system because they need, uh, central banks need uh, certainty in terms of, they, can, they have to wait, essentially they would have to wait for consensus. And so maybe they can do uh, a certain number of, a uh, small number of transactions per second. But we're looking at, you know, visas which are doing, uh, you know, 20 to 40 to 50,000 transactions per second. So it's a big cry from, from where we are today. So, I, so we had to create some uh, technology that would enable us to scale up to a million transactions per second and have that uh, be replicated so that the system would be, uh, you know, six nines of availability and, and work in multi, multiple currencies, fiat currencies. And so technologies such as that, and we have to have API billing because we're an open API system and it would be an open APIs, be based on digital signatures. And so we looked at all of the, the, the components that we would need, like if we had to design a payment system from scratch or a banking system from scratch and knowing what technologies we have uh, today, we can then assemble all those technologies into a, hey, if we were designed banking right or payments right, and knowing everything we know today and all the mistakes and all the frustrations that we have, how would we do it? And so it was really trying to assemble all the pieces necessary to have that work together. And so we went through design after design after design. It felt like James Dyson, you know, when he spent, um, I th but I think he spent like 15 years or 20 years, some god awful number of years and uh, on the vacuum cleaner. So we spent a couple of years trying to get the design right. Um, and then when PSD2 came along, we said, well, this is, this is our ticket. This is like a, you know, a gift from God where normally it's impossible for a bank to adopt new technology like this. If, if I was to try to sell open systems to a bank, it will, I, I don't think it would get anywhere. But the benefits of open systems are, are gonna be profound for banks. So would it be fair to say that like, because every bank has their own internal payment system and those internal payment system tend to connect to an external payment system? In the UK, it's Faster Payments. In America, it's the ACH. In Europe, it's SEPA. Um, but there's also Visa, MasterCard. There are so many of these payment systems yeah. and they're all old and they're creaking. Correct. Um, and the internal ones are old and creaking. Right. Where would you say token fits? Is it inside the bank? Is it outside the bank? Is it both? What, what, what? It straddles both worlds where we're trying to... Um where we come in and we say, hey, let me give you a crypto API interface to your old banking system. So now you can do a faster, AP, uh, faster payment, but you can do it directly from your app as opposed to having to log into your bank and say, here's my username and password and I wanna pay this guy, that you could actually construct something, digitally sign it and hand it over to the bank. So it's kind of like putting that modern front end on top of the old system, but because we're updating some components and adding them, now we're gonna say, oh, Instead of sending that via FPS, which will only work in the UK, maybe you can use this alternative system, which is a faster payment system that connects to 50 countries. So speak to me a little bit about PSD2. Um, there's a lot of people talking about um, you know, it being an Uber moment of banking, um, you know, it being a potential revenue earner for banking. You know, there's opportunities, there's threats. How, how are you seeing PSD2 currently? I, I think PSD2 is gonna be the best thing ever to happen in banking. And the reason I say that, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. So the internet was transformative uh, for the world. I was there, uh, I worked with the, the creators of the internet, um, worked alongside the team. In fact, I wrote the email system that the guys who created the internet used so that they could send out email on the internet. But when the internet was created, there were really only two use cases for the internet. They were, e uh, they were basically email and FTP so that researchers could communicate. 
And beyond that, nobody had any clue as to what you would use this thing for. And yet, you know, this is probably um, the most profound uh, application, you know, that has transformed uh, industries of all types. By being a truly open network. Right. And it started just because, well, we needed to send messages. We, we really needed just to send files um, from this university to that university. And the internet was forced on people. The universities actually did not want to do it. And the only reason the internet was created was that the government said, look, if you want money from us, you have to go on the internet. And then, of course, then... Uh, you know, that created an installed base and then, of course, uh, uh, grew from, from there. And now everybody wants to be on the Internet as opposed to being forced to be. And so the same thing is, I'm seeing the same thing again with banking, right? It's the same scenario that this looks, you know, looks maybe scary. It looks like, oh, oh no, it's going to level the competition. And, uh, but at the end, everyone's going to look back and say, I wonder how we ever got along with closed banking. Just like, can you imagine what would happen if we turned off the internet tomorrow? It's a crazy thought. It really is. Um, there would be uproar, I'm sure. So you've got a, a strong background in this subject of uh, identity. And I think for me, identity is like the issue in not just banking, but society generally is knowing whom I'm interacting with is the subject of pretty much everything banking does, but everything from the migrant crisis to international aid to name a social issue here. Talk to me a little bit about how open systems token and things like that can uh, transform identity or just generally your views on the subject. So identity is, you know, you're absolutely right. It's very important to get right. And so we try to get things as right as we can and, you know, uh, take the technology that's been invented over the last 30 years, uh, primarily public key crypto, and the latest uh, incarnation of that. So in our case, it's a crypto system called ED25519, and leverage that for, uh, for identity and then combine that, though, with modern technology in terms of the hardware. So use, using the secure enclave, uh, inside the phone in order to do the digital signing. And so when you when you do that, then you come up with a device that can sign a transaction. So if it says, do you want to approve a certain transaction to do this, and then I, I hit my thumbprint, then I'm authorizing that transaction and only that transaction and specifically that transaction. So it is much, much better than anything I've ever seen from a bank in terms of, hey, you know, we're going to give you this keypad and you have to type in this number and type the number that appears on this because there's no proof that you actually authorize the transaction that you're authorizing. So it, and, and plus it's not secure because it's based on shared secrets, even though it looks like this is a random number, say on your RSA token, uh, you, uh, it turns out that there's a, there's a seed in your device, but there's a copy of the seed in the, in the bank because the bank has to verify it. And there's, the numbers that you, you type in, maybe they're four digits or six digits or whatever, those are so short that it doesn't prove that you signed the transaction. It just says that you and the bank had the, knew the same secret. I had a great stat earlier when I was talking to uh, somebody from a, another company that the annual cost of fraud and money laundering and banking is, you know, in the entire world is around two trillion US yeah. dollars. 
And of it, that, it would actually be cheaper just to let the fraud through than to you know to spend try money and prevent to it. it. Yeah, so, because you look at a typical bank and they'll spend ten percent of their transactions um, will be flagged as um, someone should look at this, and uh, you know up to ten percent, and and that's huge. And sometimes it gets resolved very quickly, but other times it it's like okay, you know, we got to check this out. And so every you know, there's so many transactions, and so you're looking at hundreds of people. And so of that $2 trillion, we catch about 2% of the fraud and money laundering. So that is a, a rounding error. It's basically good luck rather than good process that seems right. to be happening. Right. And the logic went that part of the reason why we capture so little is because one bank only sees their bit of the pie. Right. If you think about any interconnected system, I could, on the internet, I can search for every web page in the entire world, but imagine I could only search what's on my device. Well, banks can only search what's inside their devices. They can only see inside themselves, and then they have to rely on everybody else to see what's happening in the rest of the system. With a truly open system, you could potentially trace transactions throughout the entire system and see everything that's happening and start identifying sure. the patterns yeah. uh, with, with that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, and then, you know, the, certainly there's been a lot of work on that in the, in the blockchain. Uh, so even though it, um, there are ways to mask your identity, there's also the quid pro quo is that there are techniques that you can use to actually sure. mine data that you didn't have before. Yeah, companies like Chainalysis and Scorechain and Elliptic, very interesting in, in, in that area. So talk to me a little bit about what's next for Token. Where are you guys going? What are you, what's, the, what's the big dream? So what we're trying to do is we're um, uh, talking to banks and telling them that, you know, hey, it's really better if all the banks can agree on one API. Whether it's ours or someone else's, it doesn't matter. But I think that you know, what you see happening is that each bank has, has, is publishing their own API. It's different from the next APIs. As the, they don't understand that as a software developer, there is no way I'm going to write to 9,000 different APIs. And that would be just be for the European banks. And so we need to, to agree on what, those, what the APIs should be, and, but also the paradigms. And we do this in computing. We call them operating systems. And we basically have you know, three primary operating systems, uh, Windows, Mac, and, P and, uh, uh, and Unix. And uh, that makes it much easier for a programmer uh, to write applications. And we, you know, we all, and we also have the operating systems for the, uh, the mobile phones. And we have two you know, that, are, that are primary, iOS and, and Android. And, and anybody else who tries to break into that is going to have a tough time. Right? It's really hard to get market share beyond. You know, one is really optimum. Two is the limit, and after two, you're done. You're really struggling. It's, it's interesting to me that the Competition Markets Authority in the UK has uh, put together an implementation entity of nine banks that is going to define an API standard. But as yet, there are a series of challenges that I'm hearing about coming out of that. And, and Jason Bates, our co-founder at 11FS, was speaking at the House of Commons a couple of days ago. And one of the things he implored people to think about was, how do you start to develop a set of standards that are developer-friendly? And how do we think through what are the real problems here in the market? And what are the real problems that customers have that we could solve? And I, I think you pointed to a couple of really good ones earlier on around, you know, kind of there's a risk I'm going to have fraud, but also I'd like to do new things. I'd like to give somebody some money. I'd like to have you know, payments that are smart and clever, yeah. so smart payments and all that kind right. of stuff. So, so a um, couple of questions to finish us off, a quick fire round, if you will. Uh, how do you motivate a team? 
uh, give them uh, uh, hire really smart people and give them really hard, challenging problems to solve. I like that. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into fintech? Uh, really understand the market, understand what problem you're solving, who you're solving it for, what the, uh, the benefit is, what the use case is. Uh, be very specific about uh, what problem exactly you're solving. Not just from a big point of view, like you know, when we went and we said, hey, we wanted to make it better. But to say, oh, hey, look, for B2B payments, here's how they're being done now, here's what the cost is, here are the reconciliation problems, here's how our technology can transform that, and here's how you get it, and, and then here's how you get adoption for it. Because when, when we started, we started, we started with the vision of, you know, it would be great to um, make banking better. We didn't have a, a, we haven't figured out, okay, so how are we going to convince the banks of this, right? Because even if you have a better mousetrap, you still have to... Um, sell it to the people who want to catch mice. And uh, sometimes, even though you may have the most obvious value proposition, the buyers don't buy for, for whatever reason. So for example, I, I purchased three Teslas, but when Tesla uh, first came out, I didn't buy because I was worried that they wouldn't you know, be in business in you know, a year from now to service my car. And you know, so you can create the greatest car, right? But there's going to be something in the buyer's mind that, that you need to understand. It. How do you know it's not a DeLorean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. You're a pretty busy guy. How do you manage all of that workload? And what's your number one productivity tip? Yeah, it's a tough one. I'd say that you know, one of the things I do is I get a ton of email um, uh, per day. And I like to file it too. You know, so I have um, uh, a filing tool um, uh, that I use that was written by a, an engineer that used to work for me. And it's called Simply File, and if you're an Outlook user, it's like it's in incredibly valuable if you like filing stuff. And I try to handle emails once, um, and you know when I see it, handle it as opposed to I see it, okay, I'll get back to it, mm -hmm. right? So if you can do that, then it saves you time because you don't want to uh, context switch. Context switching when you're trying to do like five things at once is is super inefficient. And so try to focus on uh, uh, doing a task. What are you going to do today? Prioritize, uh, get it done, you know, handle the important stuff and don't spend time on the trivial stuff. Interesting. So if you're going to do emails, you time box. It's just, just emails now. And then if you're moving on to another task, you're not flicking back to your emails to see if somebody replies. Yeah, you're you really want to minimize your context switching. And then I also send emails to other people asking them how do they handle their emails. You know, there's some people that are just really incredible um, in terms of handling their emails. Uh, like uh, Andy McGuire, who's the COO of HSBC, so he's in charge of, you know, 100,000 100, people. And yet when I send him an email, I'll get a response back within, you know, typically a couple of minutes. And I'm, I'm like, how can you possibly do that? You know, I'm, and Elon Musk is the same way, that if I send Elon an, an email, I'll often get a response back within a few minutes. Um, Michael Dell, uh, uh, similar uh, properties. And so these guys are all like super customer focused. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing, you know, the attention to detail and all, but, but just amazingly um, uh, responsive on, on emails. Um, just unbelievable. That's incredible. And uh, lastly, what rule do you live your life by? What rule? Yes. Um, I kind of like to live my life by saying, hey, make, make the world a better place through your efforts than um, than what was handed off to you. So it's not just in, in high tech, but I've also done things like I uh, sponsored a, a film to educate people on why nuclear power is actually a great thing in terms of um, our uh, fight against global warming. 
I don't think we can do it without uh, nuclear. And there are new nuclear technologies that don't have the, the properties of, of old technology. And so this is a, a technology that needs to be uh, uh, reinvestigated. But, you know, it's kind of like making the world a better place. That's a really cool rule. So thank you for your time, Steve. And listeners, if you are enjoying our interview series, please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app is. This helps us continue to bring you great stories like Steve's. That's all for now. Thank you.